Before we continue in our worshiping through the preaching of God's Word, I ask you first to join me in a prayer of confession. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for the privilege to gather. We come this morning before you to acknowledge that we are a desperately needy people. That in and of ourselves we have no capacity to worship you rightly. We have no capacity to reflect your glory. And indeed we have uh, the lingering reality of our struggle with sin. We come to confess our great need. We come to ask that you would grant us capacity to go forth and walk in righteousness. That our corporate testimony would be one of righteousness that is brought to bear by your enabling grace. And so we come this morning to beg you to use us as your vessels, to reflect your glory, and to carry your gospel uh, into this fallen world, and that your name would be exalted among us. Would you come, and would you minister sweetly to us, as only you can? We ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, this morning we'll be um, looking at the book of Acts, and we're in Acts chapter 9, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 20. The title of this morning's message is A Portrait of Saving Grace. If you will, look with me there in chapter 9 and we'll read these verses together. This is the beautiful, marvelous, unbelievable conversion of the Apostle Paul. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 9, it says, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for a letter from him to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, Why do you persecute me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas uh, for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen a vision a man named Ananias, come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. 
So Ananias departed and entered the house. And after laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he regained his sight and he got up and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were in Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. Now, this text, these few 20 verses here in chapter 9, we see the extraordinary conversion of the Apostle Paul. Now, the Apostle Paul is probably the greatest picture of true conversion that the Bible sets before us. And we see many pictures of true conversion in the Bible, and I say most probably, but here certainly it is set apart by God as the vivid picture of true conversion. Now, we saw a false conversion. There was Simon. And after that, we saw a true conversion with, uh, um, with the, the man there that was, that, was not, that was pointed out as being far removed is actually to be an example there of one who was at the ends of the earth. There, as Philip came down and met the Ethiopian eunuch, and we saw true conversion. Now you're going to see the magnitude and an illustration and a vivid picture of true conversion. And it comes to Saul of Tarsus. And he will be that chosen instrument who will literally take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now the Ethiopian Ethiopian eunuch pictured that for us on last week. But now we're going to see the instrument who will literally take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So the Apostle Paul here is the greatest preacher in the history of the church. And we're going to look at his conversion. And it's that reality, conversion of the spiritually dead, that is the greatest miracle that's ever been performed by Almighty God. The physical um, giving sight to the blind, the physical healing of the lame, is nothing compared to bringing the spiritually dead from, from death to spiritual life. Actually, the creation, the miracle of creation, pales in comparison to God's sovereign work of bringing dead sinners to Himself and saving grace. The conversion, the miracle of conversion, where those who are lost and dead in their trespasses and sin are brought into right relationship with a holy God through the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the greatest miracle that's ever performed among man. And now we see this beautiful picture here of the Apostle Paul at his conversion. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus is a great demonstration of the transforming grace of God in the history of the church. This is what God does. He transforms men and women and He brings them into His church. He brings them into fellowship with Himself. And here we see Saul as that one who is set out as the greatest 
picture. We're going to see a picture of true conversion this morning. Well, what do we, what do we think of when we think of Saul Hill? Well, certainly he was the vilest of all aggressors against the Lord's church. Saul here was a, a, a extreme. He was a man who was, who was built from head to, do, to toe with extreme aggression against the Lord's church. He was the point man, the great persecutor of the church. Saul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And he is that grand persecutor. He is that point man. And yet, there is no more dramatic conversion in all of Scripture than the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. The persecutor turned preacher. So up front, I want you to hold in your heart this beautiful reality. There is no one That is beyond the reach of the saving faith of Almighty God. There is no one beyond His reach. There is no one that has gone too far where God, according to His sovereign will, cannot reach in and snatch that person from death to life. No one is beyond the saving power of Almighty God. But here I want us to see the basic elements of conversion. Saul's conversion is a picture of saving faith. And first I want you to see Saul battling there in verses 1 and 2. Look with me there. Saul battling. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, that was a... a, a, um, to, to receive the, to, to attain a letter, a letter that he might take to the synagogue of Damascus for this reason, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, and the way there was a term used in the first century for true believers, for the church, for the early church there. And note this, that the way is narrow. There's a small gate and a narrow way, and few there enter in. But here Paul, the God, Almighty God, will take Paul and he will place his feet on that same narrow path. And Paul will dig in and he will be that point man now to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. But here he's intent on persecuting anyone, man or woman, who might be of the way. And he's going to bring them bound to Jerusalem. And there's a point for that. He's bringing them back to Jerusalem to put them on trial. But it is just a show trial. He is going to persecute them. He's going to bring them back to Jerusalem to find them guilty. To go through with the pretense of the externals. To go through the motions of the law. But He has every intent to do them harm. He is breathing out murderous threats. And that language there, uh, breathing out, is, is a picture of a charging battle horse with nostrils flaring. Paul's coming there with bad intent. So he has gone to Caiaphas to obtain a letter that now he might might chase these Christians down. Remember, there's been a great persecution there in Jerusalem. So many Christians have been driven out to various parts outside of Judea there. A place that some of them have been driven to is Damascus. And so Paul's going after them. He's going to hunt them down. That's what we find him doing here. He's going to hunt them down. He's going to do the very same thing that he did in Jerusalem. He's going to take man and woman out of their homes and persecute them. 
So what are we to make of this? Well, this ravaging Paul who's going to stalk down believers. This is how Saul referred to his own personal crusade in Galatians 1, 13, looking back. He said, I used to be a persecutor of the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. That was his intent. Paul's intent was to crush the early church, to strangle the very life out of the early church. He was going to hunt the early church down wherever they ran to and annihilate the early church. That's his intent. And what we must see up front is that when we look at Paul here, Paul is a picture of us. Paul is a picture of anyone who is slave to sin outside the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Paul is a picture of us before conversion. Excuse me, Saul is a picture of us before conversion. This is who we are before conversion. This is who anyone is before conversion, before the sovereign, gracious work of God breaks into one's life. This is who we are. Now, Damascus is about 150 miles from Jerusalem. So Saul has a lot of time to work up some steam, doesn't he? But here's how he refers to, uh, to us and to himself. In Ephesians 2, 3, he puts it like this. Uh, speaking of those who are now uh, believers there in, at Ephesus, pointing back to the time before Christ saved them, he speaks like this. By nature, we were children of wrath, just as all the rest. Colossians 1.21, he says this, speaking again to the church there at Colossae about their life prior to Christ. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Paul's a picture of everyone who was lost. Son and daughter of Adam, fallen separated from holy God. That's what I want you to hold up front. This is a picture. And children, though you may be born into a wonderful home, and though you have much light in your homes, and that is much to thank God for, until Jesus Christ breaks into your life and grants you salvation, you're in opposition to God. Take that and let it sober you, children, that you might cry out that God would do a saving work in your life. Now so let's, let's look at Saul broken in verses 3 through 9. Here in verses 1 and 2, I want you to hold on to the fact that Saul is a, is a transition piece here. He's a vessel that's going to be used by God to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. And he's a picture in verses 1 and 2 of everyone who is outside of God's saving faith. Now let's look at Saul broken in verses 3 through 9. As he was traveling, it happened that he was uh, approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So let's hold right there. Now here, when we see Saul broken, I want you to note that Saul's conversion and call comes from divine election. 
This is a five-day journey. It's about 150 miles away. When he's traveling from, from Jerusalem, they're to Damascus. And the man has built up plenty of steam. He has time to cultivate that hatred. He has time to uh, waltz and saunter in in his pride and arrogance and his haughtiness. But as he's traveling, verse 3 tells us, a light from heaven. Now, this is not a, a, a ray of sun. This is a light directly from heaven. Blast him, and he falls to the ground. Now, those traveling with him see the light. We see that later. They see the light, but they don't see Christ. They hear the thunder of the voice, but they don't understand what's being said. But here Jesus Christ is going to meet Saul of Tarsus. And He's going to meet them. He's going to meet Saul of Tarsus, Tarsus in two distinct ways. Through light and with His voice. So the light strikes Him. He falls to the ground. And right there, all of Saul's pride is taken away. Right there, his pride is cut from beneath him. The wind is taken out of his sails. He is bowed low. He is pressed under by the sovereign majesty of Christ, by the splendor and glory of Christ. He has bowed low. He is all stricken here. And by the way, that's the only response when one meets Christ That's the same thing we see from Moses. Remember when Moses saw Christ there pictured in the the burning bush? He was all stricken. He was bowed low. All the pride, all the arrogance is pushed away. And now we see Saul in that very same situation. And then the voice comes. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me why are you persecuting me so to attack the church is to attack the head of the church right so you're persecuting me now just a note here this is not an inner voice for Paul or Saul at this moment this is not an inner voice this is not a inward vision so this is a external outward physical vision and voice. Now, why is that so? Why is that important? Why do I stop here to make that point? Paul does have visions. God gives Paul visions. He does have that. Ananias here will get a vision from God. But this is not a vision. This is not inward. Why is that important? Because this moment right here, Paul is marked off as an apostle. So Acts chapter 1, verses uh, uh, 2 and 3 tell us that. That's the marker. That's the marker of the apostle. So now Paul is grafted in. To be grafted into the apostleship, he must see the risen Savior with his naked eye. That's the mark of being an apostle. Now he could have a vision and be a prophet, but that was not going to make him an apostle. So this is an external, physical vision of the risen Savior. And that's important for us because here he's marked off, right here. In space and time, at, on the road to Damascus, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, okay? So just note that. That's taking place right here. But he's attacking the church. And so he asks. And he kind of answers his own question there in the question. Who are you, Lord? Who are you? 
And here's the answer. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And right there, right there in that response, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead, just made Himself known to Saul of Tarsus. Right there. And that is a shocking revelation. And at that moment, Saul meets the living Savior. At that moment, you see the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. He's just encountered Christ. He has a direct encounter with the living Savior. And at that moment, it is a done deal. It's settled, finished. You're looking at sovereign grace right here in the text. Right here. There's the question. There's the answer. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Bang. Conversion. So what's the application here? Well, Paul has brought low. There must be humility. And this proud, arrogant, self-sufficient, self-righteous Pharisee is brought low because he just met his God. And he met his God in saving grace. And he's no longer his own man. What does verse 6 say? Get up. That's a command, by the way. Get up. Get up and enter the city. And it will be told to you what you must do. So Paul doesn't make up the rules. He's not the boss anymore. Paul doesn't get up and decide what he's going to do that day. Now he gets up and decides, now he gets up and decides to, lay, to, to lay himself prostrate before a holy God and beg for Him to show Him what would please Him most this day. And the same is true for us. The same is true for us. Get up. So he's humbled by the majesty of Christ. Note here, there's no plan of salvation offered to Paul. We don't see that. There's no suggestions here. This is just an order. Paul comes to the very end of himself right here. Saul of Tarsus dies right here. The Apostle Paul is resurrected and brought to life in Christ right here. There are no suggestions There's no plan of salvation laid out. There is just a lost sinner full of of religion, full of arrogance, meeting a holy God. And he is humbled. You're looking at a broken man. All his pride is removed here. The one giving the orders, the one that used to give the orders, is now taking the orders. Why? Because this is salvation. This is the reality of lordship. Paul's not his own man anymore. Now he's taking orders from Christ. Christ is his Lord. And by the way, if he's his Savior, he must be his Lord. Right? Didn't we speak about that on last Lord's Day in our morning Bible study? There's no such thing as salvation outside of lordship. You're looking at lordship right here. Get up. And you'll be told what you're going to have to do. And by the way, there's no day off in that. That's from the point of conversion till He comes for you. So He hears the voice of His shepherd. This is a personal call. This is not a random call to a random group. This is a personal call. Paul here 
Saul of Tarsus, now soon to be at this point in time, soon to be called Paul the Apostle because now Christ has broken into his life. And this is a personal call. He hears the personal voice of his shepherd calling him personally. This is profoundly individual. Okay? This is a personal direct address. Yes, Paul is unique in this setting, but the duress is not, or the, the address is not. It's direct. It's always direct. It's not a random call to a nameless, faceless, random bunch left to sinful man to fill in. This is a personal call from a personal God. This is a call of salvation. This is a sovereign work of grace. What you're seeing here is sovereign grace. It's a direct address. And this is a divine intervention. Philippians 2.3. Oh, excuse me. Philippians 3.12. Now, this is Paul again talking to the church there at Philippi. And he's talking about his sanctified life. His, his desire to be obedient and walk in obedience to Christ. And he says, you know, I've not already become perfect. I've not obtained that yet. But now listen to the language here. But I press on so that I may lay hold of that which also I was laid hold of by Christ. And that language there, laid hold of, literally means to seize someone, to arrest someone, to take your hands and put them on them. Him or her. To lay hold of them. And that's exactly how... And by the way, right there, right there to the church in Philippi, Paul's pointing back to this point in time, to his conversion. He's pointing back. When he's speaking to them, he's pointing back to the journey on to Damascus. He's pointing back to this moment. He says, right there, in other words, right there, the Lord Jesus Christ met me in this profoundly personal way. Now, was it extreme? Was it unique for the apostle? Yes. There was this marvelous light out of heaven and there was Christ speaking to him personally. The others around him heard thunderous sounds. But he heard this. I am Jesus Christ whom you persecute. And he describes it this way. Jesus Christ laid His hands on me. He arrested me. He seized me. That's how He describes His conversion. That's a sovereign act of God. That's election. That's divine election. That's God coming in and snatching Paul out of his darkness and sin and bringing him to the glorious light of Jesus Christ. That's a work of a sovereign God. That's how He describes it here. What could account for such amazing transformation in Paul's life? Can you tell me? This vile aggressor, this murderous uh, uh, um, um, uh, persecutor of the church, this point man to eradicate the church, what could bring about such a transformation in Saul's life? Well, not the capacity of sinful man, I'll tell you that. That couldn't do it. It's irresistible grace. Irresistible grace brought about this revolution in Saul of Tarsus' soul. So what are we to do with this? What are we to do with such a conversion? Well, for us, let's start by falling on our face. If you're here as a blood-bought follower of Jesus Christ, fall on your face and thank your God for His personal call in your life. Amen? What are we to do with such a glorious God? 
We were just as dead as Saul. That's what we have to see here. We were just like Saul. Just as dead in sin. Just as vile before a holy God. We're the same. What do we do with such a Savior? And again, let me note this. Never give up. Never give up on your loved ones. Pray. Pray for the Savior to call them by name. Never give up. There's no one beyond the reach of God's saving grace. No one. Never give up. Continue to pray for them. But it says in verse 7 that the men traveling with him stood speechless. And again, they were hearing the voice but seeing nothing or seeing no one. No, they didn't see Christ. Paul saw, saw Christ. So why not? They were right there with him. Now, I don't know the proximity, but it, it couldn't be that much. And we're talking about a thunderous sound that they could hear and a glorious light from heaven that they could see. But here we find these men standing speechless. They don't know what happened. They don't know what's going on. They were hearing a voice, but they don't know what's being said. It just sounds like thunder. Uh, scripture tells us uh, uh, elsewhere, it just sounds like thunder to them. They didn't see Christ. Why? This is a personal call to Saul of Tarsus. There were others there that experienced something supernatural. But they didn't experience a personal call from Jesus Christ. That happened to Saul of Tarsus. You're looking here in Scripture at sovereign election. Christ called Saul personally. Verse 8, Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him to Damascus. Now, there's a reason for this. This proud, self-sufficient, self-assured lead, point man in persecution is now being led. Now that is a vivid picture. So here's the grand persecutor, the one commissioned to eradicate the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he's met with Christ in the most profound way. And Christ leaves him blind. Three days. You think there's a lesson there? Not three hours, three days. And so these other men lead him on into Damascus. And Saul is humbled here by grace. It's a picture of conversion of this, uh, 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 of this once persecutor of the church. But here we're to see that the proud must become humble. That's God's way. And this is a picture of humbling Saul of Tarsus. Now this great leader, now this one barking orders, now is helpless. And he's being led along. He's a different man. He's brought low. He's no longer in control. And so the blindness here is an element of God's spiritually building Saul to become Paul. And here's the point for us. The same is true for us. Humility is a foundational pillar to the building of your Christian life. Find me a haughty, professing Christian and I'll show you a weak Christian or possibly a false convert. And be careful. You're dealing with deep, sound theology. And in our frailty, 
We can get so arrogant with that. You can think you, you lay, you, you're laying hold of some truth here. Watch yourself. Be very careful. Be very careful. You want to mark. You want to have an application this morning. You want to mark. You want to leave with one nugget. Humility. Humility. You want to see a man of God. Oh, we're frail. Oh, we're weak. Oh, we're wrong often. Show me someone that can admit they're wrong. You know what he had to give up here? You know what he had to give up? Everything. You know what it's going to cost you in your Christian life? Everything. Every bit of it. This scholar of scholars had to give up his, what y'all? His theology. Not some of it. All of it. It was so twisted, he had to start completely over. He had to give it all up. He had to admit that he was wrong in every conceivable way. And he did. Because God did this work in his heart. That's what it looks like. Humility, then building. Okay? Hold on to that. Humility, then building. Humility, then building. That's God's pattern and molding and shaping His people. Now I want you to look with in verses 10 through 16, and there I want you to see Paul transformed. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. Now right there, you see the heart of a true disciple. You want to see the heart of a true disciple? Ananias is given to you here to picture that. Ananias, here I am, Lord. Reminds you of Isaiah, right? That beautiful picture in the temple. Here I am, Lord. Send me. You want a mark of a true disciple? Right there is the language. Here I am, Lord. So the Lord says to Ananias in verse 11 there, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Hey, Saul prayed a lot in his day, didn't he? He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. You think the Pharisees prayed? Oh, they prayed. But it was formal, shallow, superficial religious words. Often wrote. It was cold, indifferent, and, and, and a form of building self-righteousness. And all his life as a Pharisee, he had prayed a certain way, and he had chanted a certain way, and he had gone through certain rote patterns. And uh, by the way here, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, knocking rote patterns. I'm the greatest advocate of catechisms you're going to find. But this had no heart in it. This is just formal praying from a very religious man who does not know God. But now, he's been blinded by a glorious light from heaven. He's been awe-stricken, crushed down on his knees, prostrate before a holy God. And his Savior has come to him and called him personally and called him out for exactly who he was, a dead sinner, and saved him and left him blind to build him up, to make him into the transformed Paul. Now he's praying how do you think he's praying now? Wouldn't you like to hear that prayer? 
You want to think about a man begging God? You want to think about a man laying hold to his Savior? You want to think about a man deep in prayer? Here it is, he's praying. And God makes note of it. Ananias, you're going to find him. So here's Ananias' vision. You're going to find him. You look for him. This is where you're going to find him. And by the way, you'll be praying. You'll recognize him. The blind guy, praying his heart out. He tells Ananias there in verse 12, he's seen a vision of a man named Ananias. That's you. And this is what you're going to do. You're going to come lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And so Ananias answers back to God there in verse 13. And he, said, or, uh, and he says, Lord, I've heard of this guy. And he's done much harm there to the saints in Jerusalem. And now we know that he has authority from the chief priest. He's been to Caiaphas. He's gotten the letter. He can do what he wants. He has authority from the chief priest to come here. And what's he coming here for? He's coming here with authority to do harm, to bind up and take away back to Jerusalem anyone who calls on your name. In verse 15, the Lord says back to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, and he's chosen to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And I'm going to show him how much, suffer, how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Well, here I want you to see that Saul is a trans, uh, Saul's transformation is a sovereign work stemming from divine election. Now we pick up Ananias here first. And again, we see that beautiful picture of an obedient disciple. And I don't believe, he, God, God doesn't chasten him here for his hesitation. And I believe it's understandable. So um, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't get on to him about that. He's like, look, just don't worry about it. Go. I know that you know who this guy is. And I believe it's just that honest intimacy with Ananias here before his God. As, as if, you know, when we're in prayer and we're like, but Lord... Really? This is what it's going to take for me to obey you? And the answer comes back, yes. And that's all, I believe that's all we're looking at here. This is just an honest intimacy with Ananias and his God. He's just laying it out there. This guy? Are you kidding me? No, this guy. Now go get him. Go get him. And so he does. He obeys. But let's face it, you know, he wasn't going to go there by himself. He wasn't going to do it on his own. So God sends him. God sends him to do his bidding. And God has all the bases covered here. Do you see that? Did you make note of that? God's working in Saul of Tarsus. And all the preparation work is being also done here in Ananias. Don't miss that. And the same is true in your lives. When God's calling you to obedience and you're trying to work this out and understand and obey Him as best you can through His Scripture, through the indwelling reality of His Spirit and through the, the, the providence of your life. And you're trying to honor Him with the best you can. Know this. He's working in all the other avenues. Okay? He's working in all phases of your life as well. The same is true for you and I. So God gives him this vision. And he sends him. And he tells him this. That this man that you're going to fetch for me, 
He is a chosen instrument. I chose him. He's mine. That's sovereign election. That's as if in the vision there, Almighty God is speaking to Ananias and says, just go on and get him. He's mine. I've already got him. Ephesians 2.10 For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for beforehand so that we might walk in them. He's a chosen instrument. That's sovereign election. He's a chosen servant of Christ. And He's chosen for this purpose, to brandish His name. Did you hear that? To brandish His name. He's chosen them out. He, told, he tells Ananias here, He's a chosen vessel. He's a chosen instrument of mine. And what am I going to do with them? He's going to bear my name there in verse 15. He's going to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. In verse 16, And I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Two things. Also true for you if you're here as a follower of Jesus Christ. You are also a chosen instrument by Almighty God according to sovereign grace. And He's called you out. I don't know the details, but I know two things that He's called you out for. To brandish His name and to suffer. Well, there goes the hush over the church of North America right there. Okay, let's make dinner plans. He just put up the wall. Yes, 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 Brother John, but that's back then or other places in the world, you know, where um, they don't have all the light and cushy life like us. You know, he said it. We're, we're unique here. No, we're not. No, we're not. That's your foolish notion. That's your fault. Because that's not true. That's you making out your God to be what you want Him to because your life is cushy. That's not what you're called to. You're called to suffer. And if you're going to follow Christ to some degree, you're going to suffer. And if you're not putting yourself in those positions, you're running away. You're hiding out in a cushy North American life. It's going to cost you. Paul is the primo example in all of Scripture of what true conversion looks like. This is a picture, y'all. And Scripture tells us plainly here, we are to boldly brandish His name with our lives. And it's going to cost us. It's exactly what He tells Ananias is going to take place. I'm going to show Him how much He must suffer for my name's sake. John 15.6 You did not choose Me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. There it is. And that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in My name, He will give to you. That's what it means. We're going to bear fruit. And the means for the fruit bearing is brandishing His name and suffering. And we'll talk about suffering a little bit here uh, in just a moment. But I want, to, I want to mention one more verse to you. John 15, 19. Look at this. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, right? If you are part of the world, the world would love you. If you were still part of this worldly sin, if you were still a fallen, lost man or woman, outside the, the covenant grace of Jesus Christ, lavished upon your life, then the world would love you. 
But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. You're going to be hated by the world because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. That's very straightforward. You're going to be. Now, not in every single situation. This is, a, this is an, over, an overarching picture. This is an overarching point, theological point. But it's true. The world is going to hate you. So my question to you as your brother here this morning is, so what? What's your hang-up? So what? What's your, where's your fear? Why are you afraid to carry the gospel? So what if they hate you? Who are you concerned about? Being popular among people that in, in your community or the world or honoring your God? Of course they're going to hate you. Don't be surprised. Who cares? Who cares? The world hates you, but God loves you. The world is going to hate us, but God chose to love us, and we do not deserve that love. So don't be surprised, and don't worry about it. Obey your God. Go forth and obey your King. But we're going to suffer, and here we see that the persecutor becomes persecuted, right? So there's a cost to following Christ. But here's the theological point. Here, there's a reason. And there's a beautiful reason behind this. When we are weak, we are strong in Christ. And Christ is glorified in our dependence. That's what you lay hold of in your prayer. When you're frightened, when you're fearful, when you're frozen, when you're uncertain, when you have doubts, when you feel weak, when you are afraid, Christ is glorified in your dependence. If you could saunter out of here in your own ability and just carry the name of Christ in your own strength, you would be just like Paul, full of yourself. Or excuse me, Saul, full of yourself. But we're now like Paul, hidden in Christ. And where we are profoundly weak, there Christ is profoundly demonstrated in His glorious grace. So don't try to conjure up something. Just trust your God. Trust Him. He is glorified in your dependence. And here's another point of application. Suffering keeps us on our knees. When it's all cushy, we get really distracted, don't we? I do. Am I alone here? Am I in an echo chamber? We get very distracted, don't we? Man, when it's tough, then we're praying like Paul, three days blind. I mean, he didn't eat or drink. Now, I don't know that he was intentionally fasting. I don't know if I, he may have just been overwhelmed. He may have just been that laid low. And isn't that beautiful? Isn't that glorious? I'll take that much intimacy with God to, to miss a meal. I mean, he could have been fasting. It could have been purposeful. I, in my mind, I just see him as awe-stricken. And he's so fervently begging God, he's just not eating. He's not drinking. Wouldn't it be good? So it keeps us on our knees. And his power is in display or on display in our weakness. His power is on display in our weakness. And his grace is made known in our feebleness. God is glorified in the broken servant. You want to highlight? Just put it that way. 
God is glorified in the broken servant. That's our reality. It's not just for Paul here. It's not just for Paul. This is a picture of salvation. The gospel moves forward in our brokenness. You want to see a revival? You want to see the gospel go forth? Give me broken Christians. Broken Christians are never preoccupied with the world. Did you get that? They're not preoccupied with the world. When we're preoccupied with the world, we don't get much done. Because if we do something, it's really kind of something we try to conjure up out of guilt, and it's in our own strength. And then we're just going through the motions. God is glorified in broken Christians, and they're just not busy with the world. Humility, then the building up. Well, I am rapidly running out of time. Let me try to press on here. So the gospel moves forward in brokenness and suffering. That's the spiritual mandate. That's the way it goes. And you're not going to find that in church planning books either, by the way, just for note. But it's very clear in Scripture. That's how it is. So either we dig our heels in and settle into that and beseech God with obedient hearts, or we can buy another church growth book. Whatever you choose. But finally, I want you to see Paul turn loose. Verses 17 through 20. Look there with me. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, what a beautiful little comment there. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road when you, <clears throat> by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something that looked like scales. Now, I don't know exactly what this is, but uh, the cataracts business was gone. You can see. I'm not sure about the scales exactly. Um, but we know that they fell from his eyes. He regained his sight and he got up and he was baptized. Now make note of that. He took the symbol. He took the symbol. He was baptized. That marks him off as one who is now under the covenant grace of, of Christ. The, 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 the covenant of grace that God the Father has made with God the Son. And now he's marked off as belonging to Christ. So there's the beautiful picture there of baptism. Now uh, he is united with Christ in this death, burial, and resurrection. He's taken that symbol. He's taken that marker upon himself. He's identifying with Christ in his sovereign, saving grace. And it says here uh, that in verse 19, that he took food. So now we're on the road to recovery here, right? Now the building is taking place. The humility has been uh, 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 put in place, and now the building up. So he takes food. He was strengthened. And now for several days, he was with his disciples there in Damascus, and in verse 20, and immediately, not some long time later, but immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying what? That He is the Son of God. All that I believed, all that I built my life around as the Pharisee of Pharisees, as this grand scholar, has been eradicated. But now I have truth. He is the Son of God. Now Paul has been turned loose and he is proclaiming Jesus that's what he's doing it didn't take him long to figure this out his mission now is to proclaim Christ and this is a public proclamation he's there in the synagogue and again we have the same 
purpose. This is a picture. We have the same purpose. Now here's the question. Are we living out that purpose? I'll just let that hang in the air. We're converted to bear, to to brandish the name of Christ. This is a picture of the new birth. Saul met Christ and Christ arrested him and he's been brought low. And Saul was awe-stricken and now Saul was humbled, then lifted up. And he has been radically changed. The same is true for every genuine Christian. The same is true for us. Now, are we living to brandish the name of Christ? Are you living to bear the name of Christ? Are we willing to suffer for His glory? Are you willing to suffer for His glory? This is a picture of true conversion. The birth from above. The power of God in salvation. Is this picture true of you? That's the question from this text. Is this true of you? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank You for such a glorious Savior. We thank You for such marvelous work, such glorious grace. May we too be awe-stricken as we see here from Saul of Tarsus, whom you, by sovereign grace, brought out of darkness, whom you called, whom you commissioned as your chosen one to be Paul, the apostle, the greatest preacher known to man. What a glorious God you are. What a glorious Savior we have. Would you help us to take note of this verse? And would you search our hearts And would you give us capacity to lay ourselves before you in prayer uh, with open text of um, Acts 9, 1 through 20, that we might search ourselves, that this this too might be true of us. We ask these things in the strong name of Christ. Amen.